we want to uh, open the word to the book of Philippians, and we're going to continue our study. Uh, as you recall from last week, it's kind of a rare occasion when I don't finish a message, but uh, I didn't finish last week's message, so you should have a, an outline in your, in your hand. Uh, from last week, we are going to very uh, briefly cover what we covered last week and then, uh, and then spend some time on what we didn't cover last week, which has to do with uh, our thought life and also modeling of the Christian life. Uh, but let me read the, the entire text, and, uh, and then we'll consider its application to our life this morning. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Do I need this mic now? I don't need it anymore. Okay. Don't, don't go too far away, because I might need you again. Okay, Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Father, we thank you for this uh, passage of scripture this morning and Uh, What a delight to read the words of your heart toward us through the Apostle Paul by the inspiration of your spirit. And so we receive this not as the words of man, but your heart, your thoughts, your revelation. And as a result, God, we want to put these things into practice right away. We don't want to delay. We don't want to, uh, to drag our feet, God. We want to say yes to everything you have for us because we know there is the place of your presence. There is a place of your blessing. And so, Holy Spirit, would you help all of us? I need your help to, to deliver this message. I really need your help that I might say your, your thoughts and your words and represent you properly and that it would be a major blessing, a source of great encouragement to everyone here. And we also ask that by your intervention in our hearts and your prompting that we might have eager hearts to respond and to say yes and to surrender and yield more than ever before, that we might be vessels of honor, fit for your service, ready to to obey your commands. So lead us this morning through this passage, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. Last week, wow, that was a nice amen over there. I like that. Uh, Last week, we were talking about the first portion of this passage of Scripture, and uh, you'll recall if you were here, we talked about, I'm going to highlight just a couple of things, a beautiful way that Paul treats the church. 
and his heart for them, and he calls them agapatoi. It's these, his beloved ones, you know. That's not the usual way you hear a, a, a guy like Paul speak. You don't really anticipate a man like that of his uh, stature and his past, his aggressiveness, his boldness being that affectionate outwardly. But Paul was a man like that. And we talked about how God wants us to be men and women like that, that openly, transparently, verbally, we actually have to sometimes communicate it, uh, communicate our affection and and our tenderness toward one another. And Paul was such a man. He calls them his crown. In other words, it wasn't his success or his achievements that were his goal in life, but it was people. You, he says to the Philippians, you are my crown. You are my crown. And uh, we talked about how important it is as believers to shift our attention away from material things and from uh, standards of success in the world to realizing it's people. It's a relationship with God and it's a relationship with others that is the most important thing. And that's coming from a guy that's kind of wired the other way. And so um, I'm not saying it's easy, but that's the direction God wants us to go in is where we're wired for people because we're wired by God that way. And it's the world that pushes us a different way, but God keeps prompting us and inviting us and, and imploring us to come back into more intimacy and care and love and agape, uh, agape love for, for one another. And then he was talking about the importance of us standing firm, and we talked about that great uh, uh, pigeon word, stecco. I won't talk about that too much, but that's just such a great word, you know, just hanging on, never giving up, never letting go. Uh, which is an important mark of the Christian believer. And then in uh, verses 2, Paul addressed this problem that was taking place in the church between uh, two women who were having a conflict. We know it wasn't a theological conflict. It was really over uh, some, uh, something that wasn't of great significance biblically. Otherwise, Paul would have addressed it. But it was some issue between these two ladies that actually became very personal and, and egos kind of gotten involved and, and they started kind of dividing the church and people were taking sides in the church. And Paul's so gentle, he encourages them uh, to agree together in the Lord. And he encouraged the the other people in the church, the leaders in the church, to help these women get this resolved. And I loved how he handled that because he didn't demonize anyone. He didn't uh, uh, throw anyone under the bus, but he basically just said, you know what, you two have to work this out. It's not a theological problem. It's not even necessarily a sin problem. But the problem was is that whatever it was was becoming a sin problem in how they were conducting themselves through the process of trying to resolve it. But I, I, uh, I highlighted a couple of things that have helped me so much that I passed on to you and I'll share again, is the importance of keeping your perspective in the midst of a conflict. We will have them. They're going to happen in our marriage. They're going to happen in our homes. They're going to happen at our workplace. They're going to happen in our neighborhood. And they even happen in the church. But it's so important that when we go through a conflict of some sort, we always keep our head and that we remain biblical in the process. And there's, uh, there's three things that I mentioned last week that I'll, I'll share again with you that Paul didn't necessarily directly teach, but he models it in this passage. And the first is refuse to demonize the other party in the conflict. You know, don't, don't assume that they're, you know, sent by hell, you know, and they're Satan's messenger. You know, that's, a, that's an inappropriate thing if that person is a believer. So it's really important not to cast aspersions on them and, and make them out to be the Antichrist. And sometimes that's tempting to do because it serves our purpose to distance ourselves from someone that's hurt us or or we're in conflict with. The second thing is that Paul says is remember that their names are written in the book of life. So when you're having a conflict with someone, remind yourself that this person is loved by God. This person is precious to God. 
This person that you're in conflict with is, is esteemed by God and, and is going to be brought to completion by God according to his promise. So don't, don't, don't give up. Don't ever give up on anyone. But remember that their name, even in the midst of the conflict, is written in the book of life. And the last thing that I mentioned that has helped me significantly is reviewing the mental Rolodex of positive impact, contributions, friendship, relationship with that person. And so whenever I'm in the midst of a problem with someone or a church issue or whatever, I just make it a practice. to I pull out the Rolodex and I do it intentionally. That's not like it just happens, but I, I remind myself, wait a second, we're having a problem right now, but let's take a look at the history of this relationship. And I go back and I remember, wow, they did this and they helped me here and we had partnership there and look at what God has done in this situation and I, and I review that Rolodex and it, and it reminds me that this hasn't all been bad. In fact, probably most of it's been good, but we're having a problem right now. And what that does is it helps me gain perspective on the issue so that I don't blow it out of proportion and I keep it the size it is and then work diligently toward correcting it, reconciling it, resolving it. So those are things that are, are helpful to me and in, uh, in most of these cases are, are really uh, modeled by the Apostle Paul. And then we talked about rejoicing always, which was Paul's model. I mean, here's this guy in prison, in Rome, under arrest, chained to a guard in six-hour shifts, no freedom, and yet the man is rejoicing. He's not moaning. He's not playing his little violin. Uh, sorry, Al. Every time I say that, I, uh, sorry, Al. Uh, um, Al's on our worship team. He plays violin, and he does a great job. But this is a little violin I'm talking about. Uh, but he, he's, he's not living that way. He's not, he's not drawing attention to himself or even his problem. He's not begging them to go on a letter-writing campaign to try to get him released. You know, there's no pulling of political strings at all. He's just rejoicing. He lives a life of rejoicing. It doesn't have anything to do with his circumstances. It has everything to do with God and his contentment in his relationship with God. And so we talked about how important it is that we're a people of rejoicing doesn't mean that we don't get depressed or we don't get discouraged or we don't have a bad day, but it means the general mark of our life is that we are just filled with praise even when we don't understand, even when it's black, even when it's dark, even when we don't even know the next step to take. The Bible says rejoice. And, and what I shared with you last week and I want to share again is that there's something powerful about that decision and that choice that we make when we rejoice, when it's not easy to do that, that God somehow makes it a reality. It's like we choose to rejoice and then he infuses us with a heart to, to experience it. But it begins with us rejoicing, not with him doing it. We rejoice, we worship, we give thanks, we praise, he infuses. It's an act of obedience. It's an act of faith. And so Paul gives us this encouragement to rejoice. Be gentle. Why? Because the Lord is near. We are almost home. Every time I read the newspaper, every time I'm, I'm just watching the news and I'm just thinking, wow, this is a wild ride. We're almost home. And that helps keep everything in perspective too. You know, if, if, if Jesus Christ were to come for us today, how many of the things that you're concerned about would really be all that important anymore? How many of the conflicts that you have and arguments you have and difficulties and challenges you have, how many of them would amount to anything if you knew Jesus was coming in the next 15 minutes? The Lord is near. We need to keep his, uh, his coming 
in the forefront of our minds. Every day I get up, I, I, have, a, I have my quiet time and devotional time, and one of the things that I love to think about, I don't think about it every day, but most every day, is I think about the finish line today. The finish line is today. I don't need to worry about tomorrow or five. I do plan, but as far as I'm concerned, today, the finish line, today, today. And so Paul says, the Lord is near. Keep things in perspective. Verse 6 and 7, such famous, wonderful advice from a sage counselor, but really from a sage God. Wisdom beyond measure, who says, don't be anxious about anything. Wow. We're anxious about everything. Don't be anxious about anything. But he says, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. We, we explored a little bit these words. Prayer is a very interesting word, prosukomai. It means to prostrate yourself. Sometimes when you read this in the English translation, it seems repetitive. Uh, praying and making requests, what's the difference? Well, the difference is, is that Paul says, begin by prostrating yourself before the king. Just discover who he is. Remind yourself of his glory and his majesty and his greatness and his faithfulness and his, his agape love. He calls you his agape toy, his precious ones that he, he, he thinks of constantly. He never stops thinking about you. The thoughts of his heart towards you are like the grains of the sand and the sea. They're, they're, they can never be numbered. And he's interceding. Christ and the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, they never stop interceding for you. You're his agape toy. But he says, begin. If you want to be free from anxiety, then you've got to be a person that knows how to prostrate yourself. You've got to be willing to bow down. And I'm, I'm talking physically. I'm not, I'm not just saying, you know how sometimes we, we say, Lord, we raise our hands to you and we all are, are standing like this. <laughs> you know, it's always a little odd. Lord, we kneel before you and we're sitting in our chairs. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that what I'm talking about when the Bible says to actually pray, it's not just symbolic. And when it says to prostrate yourself before the king, it's not symbolic. It means to actually lay yourself out on the carpet. So here's my suggestion to you. If you're anxious, and probably almost everybody here had an anxious moment this week. Some of you are anxious right now. And you can do it after the service, or you can go out on the grass if you want to. Uh, feel free. We've got a big, beautiful area out there. But prostrate yourself before God and get a vision of who he is. That's what David did in times of trouble. He said, all I want is, I just want one thing. I only want one thing. I want, to, I want to be in your presence. I want to gaze upon the beauty of your holiness. I want to be found with you. He's got all these crises going on around him, but all he can think about is God. And in the midst of that, he had peace. And so we learned about the importance of prostrating ourselves before God before we start asking any questions or making any requests. But then he says, make, re make your requests. Do that and do it with thanksgiving, anticipating God's faithfulness. And the peace of God will, as we talked about, it will stand like a centurion, like a guard around your minds, which is where we often, our minds are not thinking clearly, and over our hearts, which oftentimes are unreliable uh, barometers of truth. We have emotions. We don't always respond properly. And in the midst of this, Paul says, here's the remedy. Do you want to be worry-free, anxious-free? Well, number one is don't worry which is like, you know, how do you just stop it? You know, have you ever had somebody just say, stop it? Well, that doesn't work. If you focus on the problem, it's never the solution. You need to focus on something else. In this case, prostrate yourself before the king of glory. Worship him. Get a picture again of his sovereignty, his power, his ability to meet every single need that you've got. 
Most of the times when I'm anxious and I exercise this practical advice from the Apostle Paul, I never even need to go on to the petition because my heart is satisfied already just by the presence of God. But if you want to be free from anxiety, stop calling your friends and, and telling them the terrible things that happened to you today. You know, stop uh, watching, you know, some program on TV that's secular for advice. Do what the Bible says. You want to be anxious, free, worry-free? You, you want to have a durable peace and a durable joy in your experience with God? Then prostrate yourself before the king. And don't get up until the anxiety lifts. And then if you have requests, then ask them. But do it with thanksgiving. And the Bible says this peace, Paul's looking at these centurions that are guarding him, and undoubtedly he's looking at these guys and saying, you know what? The peace of God is a lot like a soldier that watches over you. And it guards and protects your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that's where we pick up verse 8 this morning, <clears throat> looking at what Paul's vision was for the church as it related to their thought life. In verse 8, he says, like every good pastor, finally, he's not done, but he's going to say it anyway. Finally, he's going to say finally a couple more times. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So in the midst of the, the challenges he's facing, imprisoned in Rome, as he's thinking about the Philippian church and the challenges they're facing with persecution and the regular problems that regular folks have, but in addition to that, the persecution, all those, also their, their deep concern for their beloved brother Paul, the confusion that would, that would come over the hearts of new believers wondering how God could let this happen to the great apostle, why God would would uh, hamstring Paul in a place of imprisonment when he was such a powerful evangelist and church planter. In all these things, Paul says, I want you to replace all of that worry and all of that anxiety and all of that concern and all of, that, all of those thoughts that have been completely broiling in your mind and keeping you from a place of peace. I want to show you a better way. I want to show you a more logical way. I want to show you the way of Christ. And so he tells them that he wants them to think about certain things. Now this word in Greek is logizomai. It's where we get our word logic from in English. These words are so rich. The, the Greek language is so expressive and it helps us to understand better what Paul is getting at. But he says, I want you to logizomai, logizomai, to think through. It means to calculate. It means to give intensive thought and, uh, and, you know, a, a, a process of really thinking through a particular way of living. So in other words, this doesn't just happen to somebody. People don't stumble into verse 8 on their own. This is something that's done intentionally. It's got to be a calculated decision, something that is thoughtfully, carefully, strategically entered into. It does not happen apart from the Spirit of God, and it does not happen apart from obedience to God's word. And so Paul says, I want you to focus your mind on these types of things. What have they been focusing on? Well, I already told you some of the things. They're focusing in on this crisis in the church uh, between these two ladies and this, this apparent division that was taking place, the damage that was occurring because of that. They were focusing on all, you know what the truth is? They're focusing in on the things that we focused on this last week. 
That's the truth. I'm not saying we didn't focus on Christ. I'm just saying a lot of our time and attention was given to things that were on our worry list. We talked about that last week is that, you know, looking back, most of these things never come to pass. It's like it's a rocking chair. You know, it's comforting, comforting in some sense, but it doesn't get you anywhere. And so that's what worry is like. And so Paul is saying those thoughts need to be replaced with something from the kingdom. They need to be kingdom thoughts. We're, we're raised with Christ and seated in the heavenly realm and Paul is in, exhorting us and encouraging us. I, want you to don't, I don't want you thinking like the world anymore. I don't want you thinking like just plain old regular humans because there's something divine that's been planted in our heart and Paul is encouraging us to look above. He's saying, look up. Raise the, the, your eyes. Raise your vision. Raise your heart to the kingdom and to the throne and think about these things. And he begins to describe what these particular things are. He says, whatever is true, and that just means whatever's consistent with reality or fact. And, and the truth is, is that I don't know very many things that are absolutely true. You know, the longer I live, the less I believe. You know, it's just in our world, our politics, everything. It's just like, can you believe anybody anymore? It's not that I don't believe people, but I just am cautious because I just know that people disappoint. It's like what Jesus said in, in the opening chapters of John. He didn't entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew what we were capable of. But there are things that are true that we can rely on and that we can bank on. And one of those things is the Word of God. We can bank on God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And we can bank on the revelation of the text of Scripture. This is what Jesus prays in John 17, 17. He says, as he's praying for the church, he's praying for us. He says, sanctify them by your truth. And then he defines what that truth is. He says, your word is truth. Your word is truth. When Paul is talking to, to Timothy in, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of, the word of truth. 